Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Thank you very much for coming uh, today on the, absol- the last but absolutely not the least day of Hay because it's a wonderful day ahead and this next hour is going to be fantastic. I'm incredibly pleased to have four women here to discuss something that certainly in my lifetime and in the books I've read has been one of the most male-dominated uh, areas of or professions, if you can call being a polar explorer a profession, uh, it's always been men. And it's incredibly exciting that we have four people here today who are making extreme inroads and doing incredible work. The plan for today is that they're each going to speak for about six, seven minutes, setting up what they do, then we'll have a discussion and then it will be over to you. So I'm very pleased. I will introduce all of them in terms of what they do, but just can you give a big welcome to Morgan Siad, Melody Clark, Chandra Kanath and Randall Frangdale. Our so, Morgan, Morgan is a geographer and science historian. She's also a PhD at Cambridge on polar research. Um, welcome to Hay. The floor is now yours. Thank you. It's such an honor to be here. And I'm happy to see that we have a pretty diverse audience. Um, so that's great. Um, I study gender and institutional change in the context of polar science. And I'm just finishing up my dissertation right now. It focuses specifically on the history of women's participation in Antarctic science. I'm trying to understand how these remote scientific communities have become more gender inclusive over time. And as part of that research, I'm doing an oral history project that documents the stories of some of the first women who managed to work in the Antarctic field in the 20th century. Uh, It is a really striking history if you're not familiar with it. Women were categorically barred from conducting fieldwork in the Antarctic through most of the 20th century. And in the UK, with the British Antarctic Survey, women were barred from visiting the Antarctic field to conduct scientific fieldwork through the 1980s and at some field sites until the mid-1990s. Because of this, polar institutions across the world lost some incredible potential from really well-qualified female scientists who were interested in conducting Antarctic fieldwork. Some of them did manage to contribute, working on specimens and samples that were collected by their male colleagues and brought back to them in the lab. Others moved from one country to another, trying to find Antarctic programs that were more gender-inclusive, and some left the field altogether. And then, of course, since then, women like Melody and Chandy and others have been doing really tremendous work in Antarctic science. So things have improved in many ways since then. And I'm also here because I'm the co-chair of the International Council of the Association of Polar Early Career Scientists, or APEX, although I'm not uh, formally representing APEX today. But APEX is an interesting organization. It's international and interdisciplinary, serving over 3,000 early career researchers from over 70 countries around the world. Um, All of our uh, researchers are working in topics related to the cryosphere or the frozen parts of the planet. Many are working in climate research. Some are doing climate adjacent research, and some are working on other polar topics altogether. Our membership is 55% female, which is a positive statistic. And so I want to draw briefly on my research and my experience with APEX to talk about why it is so important that we talk about gender and climate change in tandem. The gender lens is a really powerful tool for identifying some urgent problems that we need to address, as well as some really exciting solutions to climate change. And so I first want to talk about gender equality in science. We need to get more women and girls into the science pipeline, not least in climate science. And this is in part an issue of diversity and equality of fairness, right? We need to make sure that anybody who's interested in research in these fields has equal access to opportunities and is supported to thrive in whatever field they choose. But what's often a more compelling uh, argument for institutions is to point out that diverse teams produce better science. 
A recent article a few months ago in the journal Nature shows that diverse teams produce better research. And that makes sense intuitively, right? We all bring our different backgrounds, our ideas, our experiences to bear on whatever work it is that we do. And so in terms of polar research, climate research, any kind of research, any table that we're sitting at, more diverse groups are likely to identify a broader range of questions that need answering and to find more innovative ways of answering them. So um, we have been making a lot of progress toward gender equality in polar science and in climate science in recent decades. Uh, women currently run many of the world's most influential polar research institutions. That includes the British Antarctic Survey here in the UK, the US's Office of Polar Programs, Germany's Alfred Wegener Institute, the International Scientific Committee on Antarctic Research, whose executive director, Chandrika Nath, is here with us. Um, it's really tremendous what they've been able to do. And as I mentioned, uh, almost 60% of early career polar researchers today are female, and in terms of APEX, 10 out of 12 of our past organizational presidents have been women. These are very promising statistics. However, there are also some really important problems that we still have to address. Women remain heavily underrepresented in science, that includes polar science and climate science, as you likely know, and the statistics on harassment in particular are not good. Um, research has shown that approximately two-thirds of women have experienced sexual harassment while conducting their scientific field work, and roughly 25% have experienced sexual assault while conducting their field work. Women of color, early career researchers, and the LGBTQ community are more likely to experience these issues and to experience them to a greater degree. And then additionally, I mentioned that almost 60% of early career researchers in polar sciences are women, but the leaky pipeline does exist. And so the sad reality is that due to a range of barriers, some of which are gendered and some of, some of which have to do with the changing nature of academic research, many of these women, perhaps including myself, will not make it to senior research positions. Many of us will leave the field. So there's lots to be happy about and also lots of work left to do. Now, I want to briefly mention that it's not just in science that we need to work on uh, gender equality when it comes to climate change. There's also a really fantastic body of research that I encourage you to take a look at if you're interested that shows how important gender equality is to climate communications. The research shows that to communicate climate and inspire people to act, we need to do more than just share scientific facts. We need to be able to connect with people's worldviews, their values and experiences, and that means that we need diverse communicators who are able to connect with and inspire diverse communities, and that includes, of course, women and girls of all backgrounds. And some of the greatest climate communicators that we have today are women. You might have heard uh, Gabrielle Walker mm -hmm. speak. She's spoken at Hay several times. And finally, before I wrap up, which I'm about to do, I want to say there's also a really well-established link between gender equality and climate solutions. And in part, climate change exacerbates gender inequality, and we need to take that into account in our solutions. But research also shows that gender equality can have a ripple effect on climate change solutions. And what I mean by this is there's a group of researchers at an organization called Project Drawdown in the United States. They're also fantastic. Uh, look them up if you're interested. And they analyzed the top 100 solutions for decreasing the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere by 2050. They analyzed, synthesized, and then analyzed and evaluated solutions from all over the world. And they found that the number one carbon reduction strategy that we have at our disposal is to address gender inequality. That means that to address climate change, we need to support women smallholder farmers around the world. We need to ensure that women have access to voluntary, high-quality family planning resources, and we need to educate girls. So I'm personally really excited and inspired to see that by addressing gender inequality and taking this gender lens seriously, we can have a pretty tremendous ripple effect on addressing climate change. Thanks.
Thank you. Thank you, Morgan. That was, that was really great. What a lot of really interesting ideas then. But before we pick them up, I want to now come to Melody Clark, who works for the British Antarctic Survey, and her, your particular area of work is adaptation and response to climate change in marine species. Um, yeah, over to you. Thank you. So I joined the British Antarctic Survey in 2003, which is after the big breakthroughs have been made in terms of access to fieldwork. So I'm incredibly lucky and, and fortunate that women before me actually broke through the barriers. Uh, I'm a molecular biologist and I work on Antarctic marine species responses to climate change. And we've known for a long time that Antarctic marine species are very sensitive to climate change. They really don't like warming. They have very long generation time, so in terms of their ability to adapt, uh, they're not particularly well equipped to deal with the rapid change that we see at, at the moment. My work mainly focuses on, on two areas, so it's the adaptations to life in the freezing cold, so how have animals managed to live at zero degrees, and we have some very good examples of that, so for example, all the uh, fish have antifreeze genes, and antifreeze proteins, but we don't really understand much about the subtleties of how those genes and proteins have evolved to live and work effectively at zero degrees, and also how that predicates their responses to climate change. On the, sec on the other hand, I also work on responses to warming. So, for example, if an animal at plus one or plus two degrees, warmer than it's normally used to, looks fine, is it really? And uh, it could be that its reproduction is affected, it's more susceptible to disease, and that's really where the molecular biology comes in. You have to look at the level of the cell to really understand that if something looks fine and the ecosystem looks fine or the animals in the ecosystem look fine, whether everything really is. And there may be trade-offs and long-term consequences. I don't all only work on warming, I also work on ocean acidification, and I think we're all aware the oceans are acidifying as well as they're warming and that animals with calcium carbonate skeletons are more vulnerable to acidification than many other animals. And in the Antarctic, we have some quite large clams that we presume are vulnerable because they have very big, thick shells. But we know that in general, mollusks are very good at making thicker shells in response to environmental insults. So for example, if a, a marine snail is an area that's bashed about by waves a lot, it'll get a thicker shell. If there are a lot of predators around, it'll get a thicker shell. And these clams in the Antarctic get thicker shells when they're in an area with a lot of iceberg damage. So the question I had was, well, if they can do that in response to iceberg damage, can they do that in response to ocean acidification? And we simply don't know how these animals produce their shells in the first place, and therefore it's actually very difficult to understand their responses to change and how they may react in the future. So I actually took a project that originated in the Antarctic and moved it into the European arena and was awarded a European project to look at how, an how animals make shells, looking at commercial shellfish species, so oysters, clams, uh, scallops and, and blue mussels. And that's taking my research in the Antarctic and making it more relevant to, I guess, Europe. And to be honest, if you're talking about the kind of geeky stuff I do, it's much easier to sell stories about scallops and blue mussels than it is about strange little Antarctic clams. <laughs> <laughs> which brings me on to the second point I was asked to talk about, which is really about communication and communicating science. And as Morgan said, it's really important that we get a huge diversity in terms of the people that communicate that science. As a government scientist, I think it's really important that I communicate my science as widely as possible. So I do that through blogs, uh, scientific articles, talks, events like this, and also briefings to members of parliament when they come to the British Antarctic Survey or outside. Or, and a couple of years ago, I gave evidence to the House of Commons Science and Technology Committee on ocean acidification. So a range of uh, outputs, but to be honest, I don't really do Twitter, so I'm afraid <laughs> I tend to leave that to the Institute. It's probably an age thing. <laughs> but in terms of ant uh, communicating Antarctic science, you'd think we'd have a really easy job. Uh, but before coming here, I was talking to the comms team, and they're saying, well, actually, it's not that simple and you have to be really careful that people don't get fatigue. 
So you can't, they have to be really careful about which stories they, they promote heavily and how often they promote those stories so that people don't get fed up of hearing about the Antarctic the whole time. Okay? So you know, people love pictures of icebergs and seals and penguins and all the cute stuff, but they don't want to see it every day. So you have to be really careful about that. You also have to try and make it relevant to people's lives. So what happens in the Antarctic is thousands of miles away, and you may think it has no impact on you whatsoever. And we, as scientists, have to make that more relevant and point out why it is important that we, we do actual research in the Antarctic. There is also the issue, I think, these days of making your story available in sound bites. I think people like things very black and white, and it's, it's often quite difficult to get the nuances across, particularly in an area that's evolving, and particularly, I guess, with the kind of geeky stuff I do, um, to get the nuance, to really get the nuances across. So, for example, I'll finish up with a couple of examples. A couple of years ago, I published a paper on the warming responses of six Antarctic marine invertebrates to climate change, which by, you'd probably start falling asleep if I started telling you about it. But to try and engage the public and engage my fellow scientists, I actually wrote a blog, Penguin or Sea Lemon, and started it with a big picture of a fluffy penguin up front to really get people's interest on the website and draw them in and tell them the story about how actually sea lemons are actually quite important as well. Um, that may have worked. A few people said they did actually quite like sea lemon. But uh, another one is that a, uh, a couple of years ago, again, a student of mine kept Antarctic sea urchins in ocean acidification conditions for two years and looked at their reproductive capacity, how they fared. And the first year, they effectively dive bombed. They really didn't do very well in the ocean acidification conditions. But the second year, they did much better. So I went along to the comms team and said, this is good news, isn't it? It's great. You know, good, look, good news story for a change. And they kind of had the teeth sucking and kind of going, well, you can't really say that because people may misconstrue that. And they don't, you must make sure that people don't think everything's fine and don't use it as an excuse because everything's fine because it, it, it's not. You know, we did the experiment. Uh, we proved that you need to do long-term experiments. But things weren't quite as bad as we th yeah. thought they were, but they're still not great. And it's, it's really about getting those nuances across, I think. Yeah. And I think Chandy's actually going to touch on that as well in her. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Melody. Um, that, was, that was great. I like, I like the, the sea urchin. Doing a bit better. Um, our next speaker is Chandrika Nath, who is a glaciologist, a science advisor to the Houses of Parliament. She was executive director of Scientific Committee on Antarctic Research. Um, so please, over to you. Thank you. Morning, everyone. It's great to be here. Now, don't worry, I, I'm not doing all of those things at the same time. I've had quite a few different careers, yes. <laughs> and they've each taught me quite a different perspective on climate change and how to communicate it. So I'd love to share some of that with you today. I'm feeling quite old here, but I started out my career as a glaciologist about 20 years ago, 1998, um, is when I started working at the British Antarctic Survey. Now, a glaciologist is someone that studies ice and not fixes windows, which is what my parents originally thought. <laughs> um, they've worked that out now. So um, my work was specifically focusing on the Antarctic ice sheet. Unlike the Arctic, the Antarctic ice sheet sits on land. Can I just have a show of hands? How many people knew that? How many people knew? Oh, brilliant. OK, I don't have to explain about the cup and the water and the ice cube and all that. So the Antarctic ice sheet is ice resting on land. So if bits of it break off, if bits of it melt, that means more water in the ocean and the sea level will rise. And there's about 60 metres of potential sea level rise locked up in the Antarctic ice sheet. So you can see why understanding how the ice sheet is likely to respond to future, excuse me, future climate change is vitally important. So my research at the Antarctic Survey, which is where Melody works, that focused on understanding the movement of fast-flowing ice streams in Antarctica. It was really fascinating, and the absolute highlight was spending three months camped out on an ice stream. And that was at the turn of the century. I love that phrase, turn of the 21st century, mm -hmm. the 20th. I'm not that old. But I was so, um, at the, on December the 31st, 1999, I was camped out on an ice floe with three guys, and we were looking at the radio and wondering 
whether the Millennium Bug was going to cut us off from the world. <laughs> Fortunately, it didn't. Everything kept on working. Um, and that 100 days of three months, it was one of the best times of my life. And we've talked a lot about male-dominated environments. And this was pretty male-dominated. So uh, there were three guys and me. And actually, no, no other life forms at all, not even any penguins, because we were so far away from the coast. And it was an amazing experience. It was a really positive one. And um, I, it's important to acknowledge that not everyone's experience in the field is always positive. But for me, one of the ways I processed the fact that I was just with three guys, thousands of miles away from anywhere, was um, I started writing music, which is not something expected to actually happen, but I just found that um, creating art helped me to process the physical and the emotional experiences. So um, for me, during that three-month period, science and art started to come together. So that was really interesting. Um, so, so that was so the, I spent five years as a glaciologist, and um, it was really interesting to see how research evolved. So at the time, we thought that probably as the climate changed, Antarctica and the ice sheet would get bigger, and that would be good for sea level. But now it's clear that the opposite is the case, and that the Antarctic ice sheet is shrinking and is causing the sea level to rise. So it was fascinating work, but I'm probably the only person on this panel that didn't stay in research. So I ended up leaving research at the end of that five years. And there were all sorts of reasons, but um, part of it was certainly that I felt in a minority. And although I wouldn't say I ever experienced discrimination, you, when you're in a minority, when you're the only Indian woman who does glaciology, it, it just changes your perception of yourself. And I really found that it was changing how I viewed myself and how I interacted with others. And I really just wanted to be surrounded by a more diverse bunch of people. Um, so you may wonder um, here, but I then ended up working at the Houses of Parliament, which you wouldn't necessarily say is it. <laughs> it's not a really diverse bunch of people, but it, there's some really, it's an interesting mix of people that actually work there. Um, I wanted to communicate my research. I, I realized I didn't just want to do it. I was good at talking about it. And, and I thought that being in Parliament was a really good way to get these essential messages across about science. So I was working as a science advisor, and my job was to explain up to, uh, to keep parliamentarians up to date with research so they could take that into account in political decision making. And um, it wasn't just climate change, I dealt with all sorts of things like cybersecurity, nuclear terrorism, and chewing gum litter, that was a really good one. That, that got probably the most attention. Uh, so it was great. I, I stuck that out for about 15 years. I stuck <laughs> it out. It was, it was enjoyable. Um, <laughs> but um, at the end of that, I did realize that although it was fun, I, it was a bit futile. It really felt like it was just not clear to see what impact it was having. And, and I wouldn't, again, wouldn't say I was discriminated against, but I was patronized a lot, and I just got fed up of that. I got fed up of being assumed to be the one that was fetching the tea and coffee. And I'm fed up with people coming up to me at the end of meetings and saying, I've lost my train ticket, can you sort it out? Well, no, because I'm here to tell you about nuclear terrorism. So <laughs> that, that just, it, it, it's, it grates after a while. And then Brexit happened as well. So science and climate change slipped so far down the agenda that so I felt like I'd done my time there. So, and I ended up going full circle, and now I'm back in polar research, as you've heard, and directing the main international body that coordinates Antarctic research across the globe. So um, international coordination in polar research is vitally important because Antarctica is so remote, so hostile, so expensive, that no individual country will understand it unless we all work together. And in fact, cooperation is the cornerstone of something called the Antarctic Treaty. That's the international governance arrangement that, under which Antarctica is managed. And that, that is 60 years old this year. And it designates Antarctica as a continent for peace and for science. And I just think that's absolutely wonderful that it's held for that length of time. Excuse me. So that's quite a diverse stretch of careers. So very briefly, talk about a couple of things that I've, I've learned about communicating in that time. So really, the main point is that that we all want to find the answer to how do we convince people about climate change? How do we talk and get messages across effectively? And there isn't any single way that will work. Melody talked about the fluffy penguin. Um, that would just not wash in Parliament. Now, members of Parliament care about money, and they care about people, and ideally the ones closest to them, because they want to be re-elected, most of them need to be re-elected. So I'd never put a fluffy penguin on a briefing. Um, I would put maybe a flood defence 
with, I don't know, maybe 20 billion pounds in, small, in large letters underneath it, something like that. That kind of thing would work better. But even then, I think what um, Morgan was saying about facts not being enough, that's so important. Mm. Evidence is vitally important, but it's not the only thing. I'd often um, give a briefing to two different politicians, exactly the same briefing, and then go up to them afterwards and say, what did you think? And they'd, they'd interpret it in completely different ways. And that was because they brought their own assumptions to the table. And I think everyone does that. So getting a message across is not about just what you've got to say. It's about where the people you're talking to are coming from, what their view of the world is. And that's why I think diversity is so important, because we need, so we need lots of different voices to be talking about climate change in order to be effective. We've got to have people. People are more likely to, to take messages from others that they think share their own worldview. And, and just to give an example of that, um, I'm, I was brought up as part of the Hindu faith community in the UK, and I do try and talk to them, to, to the Hindu community, about climate change whenever I can. Um, and I find that it's difficult because they fundamentally believe that the world around them is not real. I mean, people that really um, have done a lot of reading on the faith, they, they don't believe in objective physical reality. So how do you interest someone who doesn't believe in objective physical reality and rising sea level? That's not something I as a scientist can do. So that's where I think someone like a faith leader would be much more, um, much more effective. So, so I think we need all sorts of voices. And finally, I just think it's not about having a few voices. Um, communicating climate change is not about people going on TV and writing blogs, not just. We've all been told we haven't got very long in which to act, and I think everyone needs to be a communicator of climate change, and we all need to create ripples in the spheres that we think we can have the most influence. Mm -hmm. And that could just be talking to your taxi driver on the way to the festival, or on the way back, saying, oh, I heard this woman talk about climate change. <laughs> <laughs> or going into to your local school. There are so many ways, but everyone needs to get on board if we're going to make the changes that we need to make in the years ahead. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sandra. I'm, I'm, I'm outraged that they asked you to fix their railway tickets and get them <laughs> Oh my God, the world never changes. Um, our final speaker, but by no means least, Rangel Frank Dale. She's a PhD at the Scott Polar Research Centre and also researches climate adaptation and transition at the Western Norway Research Institute, which is probably why I managed to pronounce her name not very well. Uh, I'm sorry about that. Um, but welcome to Hay, and uh, your floor is yours. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Um, I think I'm going to move over here to, um, to this. Um, so I finished my PhD at Spry this year um, at Scott Polar Research Institute. And I'm a social anthropologist by training, but I also have a background in, in theater. and. Apart from the fact that the screen is moving, I'm going to show you a little bit about what the arts can contribute to social science, but also what the so social science can contribute to the arts, because those two are interwoven in, in different ways. So I'm going to show you a little video, um, if this works. Let's see. Yeah. Of what we did. There we go. For those who uh, are curious to experience how the Nuremberg trials will be if they were held in Narnia. So as you can see, this is a theatre production that we did two years ago at the Baron Spectacle Festival in um, northern Norway in Kirkenes. And it relates to my PhD topic, which was about um, petroleum in the Norwegian Barents Sea, where there's currently only two fields in production. So that's those two. Um, and in 
um, 2016, the Norwegian government opened new petroleum licenses in the Norwegian Barents Sea, where they um, gave away new licenses on the border to Russia, further north and east than ever before, and several of them against the advice of the Directorate of the Environment and the Polar Research Institute in Norway. Um, so, um, the Norwegian Polar Institute, I mean, sorry. Um, so then, as a response to that, Greenpeace and Nature and Youth sued the Norwegian government uh, and filed a lawsuit to the Oslo District Court, where they had the, the first round in the court was, last, was in 2017, and the next one is going to be in November this year. Uh, they said that this breaches the Norwegian constitution of everyone's right to, a, to an environment that's conducive to health, and that's also a right for future generations. So we've got this conflict going on, but most of the debate is happening in Oslo, in the south, um, whereas it concerns the future of people who live in the north, in Chechnys, and who might not have that access to uh, understand what is really um, at stake, uh, because it's not just the climate change but oil production question, it's also a question of jobs and um, what kind of communities the North is going to be. Um, so I um, was, during my PhD research, also working with a Norwegian theatre director, Morten Trovik, um, for five, six months as assistant director and researcher on this theatre production, um, where we decided to stage this as a public tribunal in Sheikhines over the course of three days, where we had um, prosecution, defense, and judgment day. And so the idea behind the performance was to stay as close to the actual court case as possible, so we didn't invite actors to play the roles. We invited people like uh, Ingrid Scholva, who was the leader of Nature and Youth at the time, uh, to be a witness. So we had witnesses for and against. Um, the actual case, which is, does the Norwegian government breach the constitution? Uh, so we had uh, also Hans-Petter Grava, who was a professor of law at the University of Oslo. We had um, professional climate change researchers, parliamentary politicians, the mayor of Sheikhines, um, and others to represent both sides, both for and against the development of petroleum in the north. Um, and we had a professional lawyer to serve as, um, uh, as the defense lawyer as well. And then on the final day, we gave the question over to the audience, and we said, you decide. Just, this, is, this is your future. Um, and so this, this also shows like the audience was packed every day, and it was minus 16 degrees outside, but still people came and sat through all of this, and were really engaged in it. And um, it shows both the diversity of, of the kind of responses, but also that um, people genuinely really care about it, but it's not an easy question. It doesn't have a black and white answer. Um, and um, everyone, I said, participated, except for the petroleum industry. Um, who um, didn't quite want to participate in the same way. Um, which also, because my PhD is all about how narratives of petroleum are made and performed at various venues um, in terms of um, petroleum conferences and such, I, I was particularly fond of this quote. Um, so just a quick note about the piece and whether it kind of, did it actually, did it do anything? Um, so it won the... Um, uh, award for um, the, by the Norwegian Critics Association for um, making it into for making this uh, a more public uh, event. Uh, it also got massive news coverage. So some of the media follow the piece day to day, and on the uh, day after, they, the local newspaper or the regional newspaper uh, said, you know. Uh, they, they put it on their front page, basically. They're like, the people said no to oil in the Barents Sea. Uh, and then we got Nova Gazetia in Russia that also came to cover it. So it got quite a lot of coverage. And also, um, it showed things like this. This is a local girl from, a young woman from Chechines who is also part of Nature and Youth. And she's, she was at the time, and she was like, well, men shouldn't just, you know, old men shouldn't decide the future. Uh, and also it got English news coverage, um, and when the actual court case was taking place, they actually 
used some of the so the Economist when they ran a story on cl climate change trials used a picture from used a similar picture to this as well. So it kind of made it into the news in a way. And here's a bit of of people who were engaged in it and. Um, theatre scientist Anna Watson wrote that it kind of created a political agora of our times, which, which I also think that it somehow represents. Um, and so as a final kind of takeaway before I wrap up, it's also that this piece of work informed my PhD research, but also my PhD research and the, and the amount of work that I'd done on the Norwegian oil industry beforehand was, was a key part of it when I was part of inviting the people and casting the witnesses and knowing, knowing which climate scientist to, to call up so that they would come and, and, and be part of it. Uh, but also the, the artwork itself you know, had a different agenda. It's not like that was the communication of my work or that was the communication of Greenpeace's thing. Like it could have, um, the people could have voted yes to Arctic oil and then nature and youth would have had a problem. So it's like, it's not like, this isn't a propaganda piece. It wasn't trying to take sides. It was genuinely posing the question to people and asking them. So the artwork had its own agenda that might or might not overlap with what we do when we want to communicate climate change. Um, and I think that's an important kind of mm -hmm. yeah, thing. So thank you. Thank you. That looks, that looks terrific. I'd love to have gone. Um, thank you all very, very much indeed. I mean, what, what's come up so much is the difficulties of communication. You said something, Morgan, that, you know, women um, could provide or, or highlight particular problems and also come through with different kinds of solutions. Can you expand on that? Yeah. Um, so within the feminist science and technology studies community, there is disagreement about whether there's sort of a, a woman's way of knowing. And I would not advocate to say that there is. I think that um, risks being essentialist, and that's not, uh, that, doesn't, that does a disservice to the project of gender equality in science. But I think that, like I, I mentioned when I was speaking earlier, there's something that we can all relate to about the fact that people who've had different life experiences, maybe it's nature, maybe it's nurture, maybe it's the particular circumstance that we have been through in our lives, you bring different approaches to whatever your work is. And so there might not, women as a group might not be more likely to see a glacier one way compared to men, but women, in fact, there is a, a paper about um, women who live in communities in the Himalaya who interact with the glacier in different ways than the men who live at the base of these glaciers in the Himalaya. And when we take into account their local knowledge, that those women do have different access to different realities around these glaciers, how they're moving, how they impact their communities. And so I think that it's, it's not so much an issue of men or women or even of gender. It's an issue of diversity of thought and experience and what people bring to bear in the way that they, number one, identify what questions are worthy of being asked. Um, and you can certainly see that in social science research, that most of the people in my experience who are working on questions about gender um, in science or in climate change and communicating them are women. So two, uh, I mentioned uh, Gabrielle Walker earlier, Catherine Hayhoe in the mm -hmm. US, Naomi Klein. These are some of the most effective climate communicators in the world. Um, and I don't think it's because they're women, but I do think that we can say that they're, they're reaching different kinds of audiences who are able to see themselves in our efforts and feel like, oh, I can be part of that as well. So it's hugely important to have women involved at all stages and not necessarily because there's something in our DNA that says, well, we're going to be able to look at marine life in a, in a more effective way, but because we all bring different approaches and science is, we're looking for, you know, sort of objective facts and truths about the natural world, but we're humans doing it. And we're designing processes and methodologies to do that. And we can't separate the fact that we come from different places when we arrive at those conversations. Do you, do you think, Melody, that um, women bring something more, I mean, I suppose I'm going to get you know, more, slightly more emotional on this level, but do you think women care more about the kind of plight of women and children who are stuck in getting onto the immigration treadmill because they're, farms don't work because of climate change, moving them out of their habitats. Do you think we're better at seeing that or not? Or do you think it's irrelevant to the gender debate? <laughs> Difficult question. Um, 
Maybe. I, I personally don't think um, so, but I think it's a very personal issue and people have their own take on that. And um, maybe some women take it more personally than some men, but I, you know, I don't think I'm in a position to answer that. So where do you see the gender affecting the science? Do you think that science is gender neutral? Certainly, it's getting better in terms of equality in uh, representation of women in, in science. I, I don't think there's a particular, like Morgan says, I don't think you know, women do better science than, than, than men or vice versa. Okay, so if I can give you an example from yes. the world that I've been in a lot of my life, which is I would say there definitely is a gender bias in journalism, in that you, both, you send a man and a woman out to cover a similar story be it a, 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 you know, a strike or, or whatever it is, and women will tend much more to look for a human angle. And you know, you think of a women war reporter, in fact, later on this morning, I'm doing an interview with my friend, Lindsay Hilsom, about our mutual friend, Marie Covid. She brought an incredible female sensibility, where I see it as a female sensibility, to a very masculine situation. And I just wondered if that echoed through into the science tradition. I personally don't think so, because I think the question is you're focused on the science and you're yeah. focused on the science questions, and they're the most important thing, not whether you know, yeah. you're, people you're working with are male, female, or whether there's a gender bias in that at all. It's always, for me, it's a science question is the most important thing. So and that's what drives mm. science. Chandra, I mean, when it comes on to the communication, do you think it alters there? Again, I think I agree with Morgan that people that are good communicators on are, and are women, they're not just necessarily good communicators because of being female. I think it's more about having a diversity of voices. And, and one person can be a completely different person in different contexts. So uh, you might look at me and see a woman talking about polar research, but I've been to quite a few um, low-income developing mm -hmm. nations to talk about science and climate change. And in those, they've looked at me and they've seen me as a colonialist that was coming to expound some Western viewpoints. So you might be a woman in one context, but when, some, when another group of people, they look at you and see something completely different. So it's what people see as well as what you are. Um, when we take the big issues that have managed to make people come, come alight recently, I mean, I would say here that plastic has for lots and lots of reasons, become something that's now, you know, people are able to all get behind and all move forward on. Do you, do you agree that this is a kind of unifying uh, cause? And how do you see it? How, how can we use this kind of uh, example to, to make the debate wider? Because we obviously have to do a lot more than change the quality of our straws. You mean the, the plastic? Yes. I mean, I'm just yes. saying it's mobilized yes. people um, in a very well, big way. But it, mean, in itself, it's not enough, is it, just to yeah, get up about plastic? That's, that's a good point. I mean, I think sometimes these big events that happen sometimes wake us up a bit. So an example is a couple of years ago, like just when the plastic thing started, a, a whale washed up on the beach outside of Bergen, which is my hometown in, in Norway. and. Of course, we knew, had known for ages that you know whales have plastic in their stomachs and all of this, but but that event, um, the the whale on the beach, and then it was reported in the media, and then like the museum picked it up and made it like an exhibition of it, and then loads of artists started making work about plastic in Bergen and toured with this piece, and suddenly everyone in Norway was talking about this plastic whale and we need to sort out our plastic. So that was a kind of catalyst, um, not just for people in my hometown, but like for the entire country. Mm -hmm. um, and that wasn't just one thing, but you know, in one way you can say it was opportunistic of the scientists to kind of use that as a tool to communicate, but also it kind of really woke people up because the Marine Research Institute was really on it and was like in the media. And um, it, I think plastic is a different problem to climate change. It's much easier to fix. Like, of course, it's, a, it's, a, it's, not, it's not just our straws, it's like the entire... Mm organization of society, but plastic is still a, like, it's in your hand. It's, it's like you can see it. it. It's in the, the whale. Whereas climate change is this much bigger beast that's so different that it's like, it's not just, you know, if we stop drilling for oil in the Norwegian Arctic, that in itself is not going to solve climate change. Um, that's maybe part of the solution is to 
stop drilling for more oil <laughs> would be, you know, um, that I think the science is clear that we have found more than we can extract, and so then maybe looking for more is not a good idea. But that in itself is not going to solve it. So it's, it's such a complex issue that, that, where, that requires a kind of, and it also requires a respect of the science that at the moment, and, and I'm, I'm a bit concerned with how little respect there is for science in the world at the moment. That, that's a super interesting point. I mean, because you see that everywhere, and you have Donald Trump saying, Trump, you know, the, the news is fake, this is not true. So you're up against that as well. But um, how do you, I mean, all, all, before we throw it open to the audience, I mean, all, mm. all four of you maybe could answer this in that you're right, it's a huge problem. Plastics is a thing one can, as you say, get your head around and you can see it and you can see its damage in the whale and you can all make a resolution to use less. But actually the issue is, of course, so much bigger. How do you use your work to try to, you know, how do we communicate that bigger when it's such a long way away from us in this tent right now or it feels it? I think that um, being an oral historian requires doing a lot of listening. My job as an oral historian is to sit with somebody for an hour, two hours, up to five hours and ask, try to draw out their story and their own worldview the way that they see it. And I think that there's a lot of lessons there for us, all of us, when we try to communicate our concerns about climate change. And to some degree, it requires a lot of humility that we might not be able to convince everybody to get on board with the science even, even though we feel like that's such a foundational and basic and self-evident truth that we might not be able to get 100% buy-in on that. But when you meet people where they are, you can often find that there is a way forward with them. So an example using Trump's America, I'm American, um, the largest military base in the US is in Texas. And they have uh, recently transitioned to green energy. And the reason is because it saved taxpayers $150 million. So when you start having conversations with people who might, they might not want to hear anything else about my time in Antarctica and about the polar bears and all of this, but when you say, do you know how much money you can save by, mm -hmm, by putting mm -hmm. solar panels on top of your house? And do you know if we actually implemented policies at the national level that encouraged this transition to green energy, there is so much that we could do. We'll save a lot of money. Oh, and, and as a, a byproduct, we're, we're going to fix the, the climate crisis. Um, but you have to be able to, to feel out people. And as others have said here, understand what's important to them and what aspect yeah. of your experience connects to them. That me trying to connect with the Hindu community is not going to be terribly yeah. effective, but that perhaps me speaking to American audiences in, in some parts of the country that I connect very well with, there are ways that you can find that help people see how it is in all of our interests, no matter where we're coming from, to address these issues. Thank you. I tend to use personal experience, so I've been going to the Antarctic since 2006, and the ice cliff outside the office has gone back significantly in that time, and I've actually got pictures of it. So I tell people about that and say, look, you know, since 2006, that ice cliff has massively changed, and yeah. you know, we now have rain on the Antarctic Peninsula, which we never did before. Really? Yes, which is deeply depressing. What does it mean that you have rain? I mean, it why rains. It, it yes, I know, but what, why, is, why has it never happened before? Because it always froze before yes, because it, always it could froze. hit the ice. Yes, and then when you start talking about things like that, and things, you know, examples of stations in the Arctic that are, mm -hmm. seem to be in the middle of nowhere, but at one point they were at the edge of a glacier and they were built specific there specifically to study that glacier. And then people start talking about, yeah, well, actually, you know, I've been thinking, things have changed yeah. since, you know. Yeah. And, and people start then relating it to the way the, the weather's changed in the UK, you know, the fact yeah. that yeah, it doesn't yeah. snow so much and things like that. And that's how I try and, and okay. do that. Thank you. Tragic. Um, I suppose I do a combination of um, what um, the other two have talked about. I, I try and combine messages of hope with messages of despair, because actually, <laughs> honestly, deep down, I do feel a lot of despair, and I do worry about the fact that maybe we won't tackle this. And I, part of my brain is thinking, well, what shall I do if we don't get, if we don't manage to stay within 1.5 degrees? But when I talk to people, I, I really emphasize this is not really just about the distant future. This is now. This is not just about your grandchildren. This is about your children. And this is about you, because it's mm. already happening. Um, but then I also talk about the solutions <laughs> as much as I can. Thank you. Yeah, um, I think we also have a. Um, I, w I, w 
it's that kind of combination of hope and despair in a way. And I think it's also generational. I, I mean, we haven't talked about the school strikes yet, but mm -hmm. like the, the climate strikers have really shifted things. Mm -hmm. They've shifted like a lot of that's shifted momentum in terms of like politicians also understanding that even though they're we tend to say the politicians think four years are like you know one period of time but now actually they're also understanding that these are their future this is the future electorate so they need to step up their game now um, and that that to me is really really hopeful but also we that are um, kind of working on Climate change need to need to support that and to you know help provide. So I'm not a climate change researcher in the kind of scientific like I'm a social scientist, I'm not a physical scientist. But um, I often base my my like I, I trust the physical scientists and I I, I like I I'm really appreciate that some of the Norwegian climate scientists are also really supportive of the climate strikes and are saying that you know we need to listen to the youth, but also the youth are listening to the physical scientists, and so it's it's a kind of good um, good example of how um, communication of the urgency of the issue actually works across different social groups, um, and also I think that we need to realize that these things impact, like Morgan said, people's lives. You know, like in the North, it's a question of jobs, but it's also a question of, this, of, of who gets to take part in that. Because if we are going to have a massive industrial development in the North of Norway, that's also going to impact the indigenous population, the Sami. Um, and they are already impacted by loss of grazing land. But then building windmills might not be the solution either, because that that is also like if you build windmills in mountain areas, then um, that also takes away grazing land and yeah. and, and, and is, is threatening biodiversity. So it's like it's not a mm. easy solution. But understanding the kind of fine grain of everyday life in different regions is is key to finding good solutions. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Um, We've got about 10 minutes. Um, can we have a mic up there to that lady? And then we can probably get through all these. Oh. OK, the lady behind, a few rows behind you. OK, you come first. Thank you. I used to be able to say that in my lifetime, women weren't allowed to run marathons. But now I have to say in my lifetime, women were allowed to study um, in the Antarctic, and what was the excuse for not allowing women to study in the Antarctica? And it's, it is so sad to think about all the science lost. Um, I am working on that answer right now, <laughs> but I can tell you. They must uh, have given reasons, right? Yeah. So at, at the most superficial level, almost every woman who was denied access to the Antarctic in the 20th century was told that there were no facilities for women in Antarctica. One woman, Janet Thompson, who became the first woman on ships in the Antarctic through the UK, um, has a, tells a story about a, a colleague of hers who was told, um, you can't go to the Antarctic, but we don't think you should be upset about that. You wouldn't like it anyway. There are no shops. There are no hairdressers. <laughs> so there's this superficial level, but on a more serious note, there was a lot of anxiety about the risk introduced by women's participation. They were worried that women on station would mean that sex would happen on station. They were not talking about homosexuality. And they were afraid that the men would respond poorly to competition over a limited number of women. And that, that is clear throughout every archive I've been in. This is not conjecture. Um, it was a, a question of morale. These isolated stations, could they survive if, if there were these new experiments with competition? And then, of course, ideological anxieties behind that about what it means to be a heroic explorer um, yeah. All these kinds of things, yeah. And then what was the catalyst that changed it that allowed the first women to go to the polar? In the UK, it started with the passage of the 1975 Sex Discrimination Act, which meant that Bass was in danger of being sued by the women who wanted to go down. Yeah. Thank you. Number two. Hi, thank you. I think I sympathize with that clan. I think uh, my shell gets thicker with him during his lots too. Um, so my question was around maybe bright spots or areas in scientific disciplines where there is a lot of female representation. And a lot of those have very difficult fieldwork components to, I mean, primatology is a very well-known example. In public health where I work, there's a lot of women. And I wondered what we could learn from some of those scientific disciplines that could perhaps be applied to climate change. Okay, Chandri, do you want to answer that? So I think that um, 
talking about disciplines where there's a lot of interaction with people. And I, I may be generalizing, but um, some of the, the public health disciplines, and um, it does tend to be the women at the front line. Um, I think perhaps what, what, you can, what you could learn, or what I'd take from that, is just the importance of the human interaction, interaction yeah. in any research field. So even if the physical sciences have nothing to do with talking to people, they're still being done by people, and you're out in the field with people, and environments are just healthier if they're more mixed up. I don't know if that really answers the yeah. question, but I think that's, that's one of the things I'd take away. Number one. Okay, yes, okay, you, you go. Um, got a question for Tabrika. Um, it's about communications of uh, the severity of uh, the melt and stuff. Um, in the summary for the policymakers, um, there's often sort of talk that actually the underlying science by the working groups is much worse, and um, you know, it's been sort of turned down for political reasons. What's your take on you know, how soon um, the ice shelf in Antarctica is going to melt, and has it been turned down? Um. I don't think it's being toned down. I think there's a lot of uncertainty simply because we've only really been able to take measurements in that region for about 70 years. And there's so much natural variability that it's sometimes pick, hard to pick out the signals of, of climate change. Um, but my take on melting ice, that's fairly unequivocal. The, um, I mentioned the whole Antarctic ice sheet, but the, the bit which is actually below sea level already, the West Antarctic, if that were just to lift off the bed on which it sits, then that would be between four and six meters of sea level rise. And we're talking about maybe hundreds, thousands of years for that to actually happen. But the tipping point for that to happen is somewhere between 1.5 and 2 degrees of climate. That's what we think. And, and once that starts, that is an irreversible process. So um, I think that's uh, that Melody, sums up that's anything question. you want to add to that, as you've been there and watched the glaciers melting? And I think there is a lot of uncertainty, and I, I, it, there is now a lot of research because we now have the technologies to, do to be it. able to do the field work. And I know Bass has a couple of really big uh, field programs, Beamish and the Thwaites Glacier in conjunction with the US, to really start to nail that uncertainty mm. and to get some better figures that we can then give to policymakers. But, you know, the ice sheet is undoubtedly melting. There are issues. Um, as scientists, we give the information to the politicians. What they do with it after that is, we just have to hope. We can come up to number two. Hi. Oh, no, num okay, number two and then number one, and then we'll be a bit, of can you keep your question really short, because we're kind of at time, thank sure. you. Sure, um, so you've got, um, it sounds like there's a mixture of international issues in terms of the objective science, and making sure, make sure that it's communicated at a local level. Um, does there, is there, and, does, or, and or does there need to be a supranational organisation in terms of governance that gets that, the science done, and the communication done effectively? to meet the challenges you discussed. Okay. Um, Does there need to be a, an international organization? Yeah, something that works better than the... To you know, coordinate the uh, to coordinate the messaging or... Or the action. Both, or the I action. Mean, presumably that's what the climate change meetings are. Well, the IPCC the coordinates the messaging in their, their summary to policymakers. I, I don't think um, we need any more I don't international organisations. <laughs> I could write a um, book that was just full of acronyms. I don't think the solution is more organisations. It's just the ones we've already got need to talk to each other better. Thank yeah, and you. it's also realising that, that climate change solutions are both global and local. Okay. Um, I'm going to take a last question from you. Thank you, sir. Well, I, I think my question perhaps has been answered. We seem to be, it seems to me, and thank you very much for such inspiring talks, I may say so. Um, but we're facing not just a global issue, but a real global crisis, are we not? You only have to think of the president of Brazil's continuing felling the rainforest in Brazil or gas promise yep. in Siberia, ruining the territory there, or the felling of rainforests in Indonesia, and so on, coal-fired uh, power stations in China. How are these messages going to get across urgently enough to the world as a whole to love the planet sufficiently to do something effective about it? The million dollar question. <laughs> okay, you've all got like 30 seconds each to answer that question. <laughs> Um, I think I will 
take a little bit of a pragmatic view and say that to some degree I think we have to push past the people who can't be inspired and try to motivate those who can to move toward um, trusting in the science and, and taking whatever action is within their, their sphere to take. Thank you. I agree. As a scientist, I can present the facts, but we do really have to push that to get the politicians to act and to get the politicians to act internationally. It is an international problem, and mm. our world is getting more fragmented, and that is absolutely the wrong thing. We need more cooperation, more coordination. I think the messages are beginning to get through. I think the Chinese, for example, they're beginning to phase out, phase out coal-fired power yeah. stations. Um, so things are happening. They're not happening fast enough. So I think we're on the cusp. I really think we're at the point where just uh, more pushing from everyone will actually start to move things in the right direction. Mm. And do you think that more more countries can do that? Like that more countries could do the same action that you've taken against the Norwegian government for the rights to? I mean, I know there's one happening in America, there's one in Ecuador. Yeah, yeah, they are yeah. beginning all over the place. These class actions against a government. Yes, I mean, I'm I'm not part of the lawsuit itself. But, but um, still, but as a principle, the lawsuit is happening, and that is. You know, it's adding to this thing we call climate risk. You know, it's, yeah. it's the risk for the corporations or the exactly. governments that they might be sued by this and then be liable. Um, and um, I think the, the lawsuits is a really interesting. Sorry, no, this is more than thirty seconds, but is a really, really interesting um, uh, add to the mix because it's it's actually shifting the game in some ways. Like the, the Ogenda case in the Netherlands actually said that the government needs to up their game and now yeah. they have to do it. But lawsuits in themselves aren't going to solve the issue. They're just like a part in the mix of shifting the discourse. But, but I think it's very clear that it's a, it is a crisis and that most people, more and more people are, are aware of the urgency now. But I'll, I'll agree with Morgan that some people can't be convinced um, and that it's, it's like we need to ensure that the transition is just and equitable and that we take that into consideration as well when we think of how we get people on board. It's also that it needs to feel fair. Thank you all very, very much indeed for coming. Thank you.